I'd found myself dealing with a lot of anxiety issues surrounding my current career as a creative director for an ad agency. I was doing Euphemet. The show was on Hollow Earth Radio. It was live. It was kind of what Night Drift sounds like now, yet probably more exploratory and not as good. I was still trying to find my voice. There was a portion of me that was kind of going through these bouts of anxiety attacks related to my career and uh, trying to find out what was drawing me so much to the paranormal. And as I continued doing that interview show, I, I realized that it's because the, the, the unknown, the paranormal, was very natural for me. As a kid, I would be sitting and eating cereal, watching TV, and my mom would walk through the room and go to the telephone and pick it up and just start immediately talking to my grandma. I'd be at my grandma's house, and the same thing would happen. I'd be sitting there, drawing. My grandma would walk by. She'd pick up the telephone receiver and start talking to my mom. And this happened so often that it was just routine. It was sort of like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, inside family joke. Oh, this is our ESP. This is our ESP. But I even had an experience where my grandma had found us at a shopping center when my mom had twisted and dislocated her knee and was needing emergency help. My grandma showed up. The unknown was a place where I felt very comfortable. Uh, I was always the kid you know, looking for Sasquatch or UFO books at the library and consuming as much as I could. And as I got a little older, as a, a kid from the 90s, essentially, I stayed up way late, I couldn't sleep, and I listened to Art Bell. And worldwide, on the internet, this is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. The foundations of my sort of belief systems within the paranormal uh, and and my the beginning of me searching for what this all could mean really started on staticky AM broadcasts. I'm Jim Perry. This is Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. It's the four-year anniversary of this very documentary series, and tonight, we'll look back through the last five seasons, the stories that shaped the series, the moments that changed me. The questions I was asked here are based on suggestions by listeners like you. Listeners that the show would be nowhere without. You've supported this project with your money, your time, your voice, and your stories. You've given me your heart. You've shared that with your fellow listeners. And this only happens because of you. Listening to this right now. You. Next on Euphemet, how did this weird podcast even happen? How did the road become a home for me? And where is this all going? That's next on the four-year anniversary of Euphemet. So here I am, disenchanted 
by this job I'm doing, this career I found myself in, seeing myself now participating in some sort of mock version of Coast to Coast AM myself on at Hollow Earth Radio. And I'm finding this urge to go out and be a part of it. I'm saying to myself, listen, I have to travel a lot for work already. I have to go and I have to create uh, sometimes short commercials or documentary custom content for sort of Fortune 100 brands. I was already doing this. I was like, why can't I just take that skill set and apply it to something I truly love? Like you've met, for example. So I decided that I was going to go to ESETI, which was this crazy place in southeast Washington where people were seeing all of these UFOs, having all these sightings for decades. It was a campground, so I went ahead and reserved my space for me and a couple family members. And we went there with no expectation. We went there and uh, we wanted to just soak up with the experience without sort of expecting that we were going to immediately make contact or something. I went to this ranch. We were introduced to meditation techniques to help contact unidentified lights in the sky. Potentially, some would say, non-human intelligence. To me, it was just all-consuming and so exciting. And it was that moment in time where I really felt myself moving from being an enthusiast to someone deeply engaged with searching, with exploring. Now, what I wouldn't and didn't ever expect during that trip is to also become an experiencer by the end of it. It was after having this experience with uh, a pulsating light on the mountain during a meditation where after 20 minutes of realizing that I was breathing in to this light in the mountain and breathing out and this light was following, it was patterning its behavior on how fast and how frequent I was breathing. It was after that moment that I realized, okay, well, I'm in it now. And, and, and whatever I'm experiencing now, this sort of weird uh, excitement, but also guilt for experiencing something anomalous like this, uh, it is now allowing me to see what people on the other side of the microphone, on the other side of Skype at that time, were feeling as well. You, you know, no one at this point in time was going out into the field and capturing these stories of people in a documentary format. Someone suggests many people are not doing that right now. But I, you know, was a big fan of public radio. I was a big fan of This American Life. I was a big fan of true crime podcasts. And I, and I thought, um, if I could take a little bit of that recipe and combine that with my love of the, the unknown, um, that could have a shot of like potentially reaching a lot of people in very emotive ways. And so I immediately <laughs> got back home from that trip and I just quit my job within a couple weeks of that experience. What I earned was my freedom to explore and my freedom to be an experiencer in this field, yet not let that dictate what my execution of the art form would be. And to focus rather, not on myself, but on the other people that are out there experiencing these things.
so I think that was the moment where I really kind of I, I, I bought into it and and I went full steam. It just so happens that shortly after that, a podcast network, a fledgling podcast network, reached out to me and they picked up the show for a season and gave me for the first time a substantial budget to go out there and travel and communicate these stories and basically develop what the show would be, which is kind of the entire first season of the show is a sprint towards trying to figure out what this show could be. So for season one, we had a dedicated small team that was working on this brand new show. We had Chelsea Weber Smith, who was a producer and who helped with writing and social and story development. And then we had Tyler Carey, who edited the show and from day one understood the vibe, the voice of this thing. I had known Tyler for years and years and years. We came up from the same hometown. So it was great to be able to work with him again on a very intimate project. You know, the effect this show had on you. I hope it's not the last one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was a, an awesome experience. And definitely, you know, we have worked together on a lot of things. And, you know, for a lot of years, this was definitely our, our biggest project together. And definitely my most memorable and most fun. Yeah. <laughs> I spent like a week down there with Greg and Dana and uh, they took me to the TNT site in Point Pleasant. They took me to the Mothman Museum. Uh, They showed me around the greater sort of Ohio River Valley. When we were at the TNT area, it was legitimately the first time in the show that I was scared. And, you know, listen, this doesn't quite come across on the audio but it was pitch black out there. We were out there at night. And, you know, you're, you're surrounded on both sides by water. And in addition to kind of the, the, uh, the high strangeness factor, you know, there's animals to be considered out there. And if that wasn't enough, there were some guys shooting shotguns on the other side of the water from us. So there's all these... And you can hear in the tape, and I think I leave it in the episode, that like very legitimately there's people firing guns just that don't know we're over here by like some empty, you know, uh, <laughs> husk of an industrial area. So I was not only afraid because of the, the sort of the high strange factor to it, and, you know, you, you really could, you, you just felt like you're one of those kids in the car speeding away. From, from a winged beast. But I, I just felt like we could have kind of got shot too. And that wouldn't have been like great tape. <laughs> <laughs> That's gunfire from across the swamp. Trigger happy heroes, as John Keel would call them. We retreat into one of the dark bunkers fearing a stray bullet. More than a mothman. It's because everything you say in here lasts longer. Like it has a vibration that carries it like further almost than when we're standing outside and everything sounds flat. And like once you've said it, it's done. 
Everything in here, it's like elongated, stretched out, vibrational. But you know what's interesting about that? So is everything that happens in Point Pleasant. By the end of that season, looking back on my experience at East Eddy and then everything that I had experienced since then on the road, you know, developing and producing 18 episodes for the first season in a very short amount of time. It was me looking back going like, how the fuck did this all happen? How did I get here? And I stood there producing the, the, the last episode that season, knowing that the network that I was on, uh, knowing that I was going to walk away from them, knowing that I was going to take this into my own hands for real this time, and being completely confused with what I believed in. I sort of reached another dark night of the soul, and I think when people revisit episode 18, I was there trying to document the stories of my friends, Tim Rothschild, Gina Turner, Jen Sodini. I was trying to document their story of making this really cool retreat out in the middle of Joshua Tree for people to come and experience and, and, and change their lives. A lot of people that came from all over the world to be together that felt very alone. And as I'm sitting there, I realized that I realized at some point, like I was there for a reason. I was, I was just like one of those other people there. Like I was there for the, the healing of it all. It's very clear. I had made a choice then at that point that I needed to put more of myself in that episode in particular and be very truthful about where I was coming from. And that felt very liberating to me. And it's one of the most sort of raw experiences I've ever had producing the show. It's one that I think of often, and sometimes I do go back and listen to that episode. What's true? I ask myself this often. My answer as of late has been, I don't know. I don't even know what I believe in anymore. And it turns out it's maybe a part of a mystical process where after one experiences continual profound paranormal activity, such as I have, you may just be pulled from the confines of comfortable reality to find yourself in a new unknown country, its border ill-defined, the vast lands of the obscure revealing possibilities endless. Invariably, this misalignment of one's internal compass leads me far from home to crash landing in this barren desert at the Divine Evolution Retreat in Joshua Tree. I'm, for the first time, actually looking for answers. How do I reclaim my narrative when I don't know what that is? I'm looking for friends, looking for a space to figure out what all this could mean, looking for what true really means. There's this idea from Robert Anton Wilson. And in it, he describes that space where you find yourself once you've experienced so much weird, you almost can't quite turn back. And he calls this Chapel Perilous. 
He says it's a stage in the magical quest in which your maps turn out to be totally inadequate for the territory and you're completely lost. And at this point, you get an ally who helps you find your way back to something you can understand. And then after that, for the rest of your life, you've got this question. Was that ally a supernatural helper or was it just part of my own mind trying to save me from going totally bonkers with this stuff? And the people I know who've had that kind of experience, very few of them have come to an absolute certain conclusion about that. What he says is that when you enter this state, Chapel Perilous, when you cross the threshold into it and find that although all kinds of bizarre and seemingly impossible things are undeniably happening, you're completely unable to decide whether they're objectively real or purely imaginary. You come out the other side either stone paranoid or an agnostic. There is no third way. So when I was continually challenged every single taping by something crazy happening around me, it was stuff like this that I would read to help me get through. Because as much as I thought it was important for others to hear these stories of individuals that have occurred transformational experiences so that the people listening may feel like they're not as alone, it became very clear to me that if I didn't start taking care of myself and considering these ideas as a way of almost sort of supernatural mental hygiene, I was going to be the one that was alone. <laughs> and there was times where potentially maybe that was very close. And it's not that we haven't seen that over and over again in the pursuits of men or women, people, individuals spirits that are out there that are trying to find something else and cross that divide and that can never quite find their way back home. And that's how I felt during season one. Well, when I entered into season two and it was completely on my own, I knew that I still needed a support system and collaboration. Uh, at this time, I was also, since I had no budget, I was beginning to edit the show again on my own. But I also knew that I wanted to experiment with the show more. I felt like I had found a format that had really worked, that I really loved navigating the narrative waters through. So I brought on Carl Pfeiffer for an entire season to basically travel with me and shoot the whole show. So in addition to recording the, the, the normal Euphemet features as I did with action tape and sit down interviews and, and traveling out to do these things, Carl shot, you know, tape the entire time as well. And with the idea that we would create potentially a short film series that would accompany every episode of the audio podcast. So what occurred with that is that I consolidated the entire season into one long shoot schedule. So it was myself, Carl Pfeiffer, and my dad. And we traveled out to the Northeast together. And we're out there for like three weeks with uh, doing an episode sort of every day or every other day. 
you know, the show had no money at that period in time. And I knew it was important to continue establishing relationships with collaborators. And so, you know, Carl came out, but I didn't pay him. He just wanted to be a part of the process and to make something happen and to, and to be creative and to explore what we could do together. And my dad essentially helped co-fund this season because based on travel costs and motels and hotels and rental cars and things of that nature, my dad kind of like split that with me. That was an incredible learning experience, and I felt like we captured some really intimate stories, most specifically of communities. I felt like my experience with Devin Person the Wizard in the subways of New York was an unforgettable experience. Uh, walking through town with this guy who was embodying a sense of magic in, in 3D reality and, and making people believe and, and allowing them to feel how real magic could be. And I was getting ready to go home. I, I had my sign folded up. I was on my, the G train. I was riding at two stops to my house. And I'm there and this girl's like sitting in front of me and I'm standing and she says something you know, about me being a wizard. And I said, well, let, you know, I'm on my way home actually, but let me, uh, let me get you a wish. And she's like, oh, I want a glass of wine. And I was like, honey, if I had a glass of wine in these robes, I'd have drank it by now. But, uh, I'm getting off at two stops. Like, this is a real moment in your life. You could say something real right now. What can I do for you? And she, like, snapped to attention. And goes, I am going home right now to apply for this audition that I really want. Like, it's a dance audition. I want to get it. And I, I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to give you a task. I want you to go home, and before you hit send on that application, I want you to dance for five minutes. And that five minutes of dancing is going to be your magic spell to, like, get this audition. And she's like, okay, I'm gonna do it. But she had gone home, sat down, filled out the application, hit submit, did not do the ritual. There was some sort of error with submitting where like the computer's fucked up. And she was like, I don't know if it's submitted or not. But then she realized that she hadn't done the, the spell. And I was like, okay, I. I I think I have to resubmit, so like this is probably a sign that I should do the spell. And so she danced for five minutes, and then she looked at her application again, and she's like, "Oh my god, like I, I wasn't, I haven't revealed anything about myself. There's no personality in this." And she rewrote it and made it like so much better and about herself, and then hit send, and then got the audition. So just like a feature that I had done during the second season with Lynn Nickerson, um, a psychic empath who sort of has experienced a, a ton of different strange anomalies that have influenced her not just personal life but her professional life one of the things that she had experienced was a relationship a, a, a dreamlike relationship with a place that she had never been only to discover that it's where she would have moved into later and it's sort of the exact location not a day later i have this same exact phenomenon happen to me with a beanery I'm forcing myself to just record about this because I know if I waited, I just wouldn't. <laughs> I was going to say, you just checking your mic. Like, is this, are you worried it was broken? I'm like kind of, it's great that I pushed record and it's recording right now, but I'm at a loss for words. And I also don't know if I'm um, maybe, uh, <coughs> I don't know. 
sort of overexcited about what I just experienced. You know what I mean? So it was about in the second week of our trip when we were driving on the highway in a rental car, port side of Portland, Maine. I was looking off towards the water and something caught my eye that I could have never really expected that would make an impact the way it did. What I saw was a bean factory. Although I'd never been to Portland, Maine before in my life. And I had not really researched what this place looked like, what was there. I'm not an avid bean can collector. I was familiar with this bean factory already. I had been there. Also, at this time period, so much weird has go- had gone on in, you know, during the weeks of taping that I, I almost, it just like flowed out of my mouth pretty naturally. I, I've been there. I've been there before. And, you know, they didn't know quite how to react to that because they, they knew I had never been to Portland, Maine before. So they were kind of confused. And so what I described to them is a few weeks before, dream, 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 dream. And in this dream, me and one other person is in the parking lot of this very bean factory, down by the docks on the other side of a chain link fence, just a stone's throw from the water washing ashore, a rocky cliff. And we were trying to get into the building. In the dream, there was a stairwell on the outside. There was an exterior stairwell going up the brick facade on the side of the building to a second or third story door. And it was there that we were trying to get in and we were trying to let someone out of this place. It's very strange and exciting. The dream ended without resolution and I had forgot I even had this dream as we do. We, we got to our Airbnb. I was obsessed with it. And I was annoying my dad and Carl, I'm sure. I called, I called Tim Rothschild. I explained to him what had happened. And I convinced Carl to, to go back to the beanery with me. It was on a business day. It would be right around the time people would probably start getting off of work, maybe. But I didn't care. I had to go back out there. I had to confirm or disprove what had just happened to me because it felt all too real. So either I was having like some sort of episode or there was something psychically that was connecting me with this location in a very real way. So we drive out there. I have my recorder set up just in case anything extremely wild happens like a portal opens up and I get sucked into it into a dream I have Carl standing by with his camera just in case anything like that happens or if I'm ejected from the property uh, you know sort of aggressively I know I didn't want to go inside and ask anyone because what the hell do you ask them what the hell do I say to them and at this point in time I hadn't quite developed the relationship with the unknown that I have now where I don't really give a shit who knows about things like this I still was a little self-conscious about this whole aspect of me 
being on the road doing what I was doing in some regards. So I decided rather I would get out and I would just go to the side of the building. I would go to the scene of the dream. As I was walking, it was almost as if time was slowing down. I could feel in my chest, my feet touching the pavement below me, almost as if there was a reverberation like a drum. The, the air was crisp, the wind was sort of whipping through the parking lot, through the same chain link fence that was in the dream of mine, in the same location. Uh, stones throw away from the water, the splashing up to the sort of the rocky shore. And I noticed that this stairwell, this old rusty metal exterior stairwell that was featured so prominently in my dream, it wasn't there. I didn't feel relief that my dream had just sort of been disproved or proven to me that it was less possible. I felt sad that maybe this spectacular moment was my imagination or me getting ahead of myself. So I turn around from the building and I'm looking around. Carl's still sitting in the car. He didn't want to get out. He really felt like we were going to be like sort of escorted off the property as it was a, you know, a, a food production facility. As I'm taking some deep breaths and sort of surveying the scene, kind of disheveled, I look towards the building again, almost frustration, and I notice that uh, as my eyes scaled up the building that, uh, in fact, a exterior door on what would be the second or third floor was visible and just opened out into nothing. As if there was once a stairwell where there was in my dream. That was almost all I needed. At that point, I didn't feel like I needed to talk to anybody inside to confirm anything. I didn't need to ask them, hey, was there a stairwell that used to be here? There was in fact, a stairwell that used to be there. And because of the specificity of not only my dream, but these things that were being confirmed to me, they left a lingering question in my mind about what all that could mean. And when I talked to Tim later, trying to seek some sort of mystical guidance, he said, maybe it means nothing. And I wanted to punch him in the fucking face. <laughs> But the reality is, is that maybe it does mean nothing. Sometimes I think the strange doesn't have a neat little bow. And it's one of the things I learned in the second season of Euphemet is that the strange sometimes, listen, it lingers. And this so-called trickster phenomenon that is present in so much of the writing that so many of us nerds obsess over. It's a real thing. Sometimes if one thing isn't true, it doesn't necessarily mean the opposite is true either. And sometimes both things are true. At the end of the day, sometimes it, 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 it is just but a wink from whatever is happening out there. It says, listen, yeah, like keep, keep playing. 
keep engaging. Something else is here. And you may never know what it is, but it doesn't mean there shouldn't be a pursuit of why it matters. Why it matters to you, why it matters to other people. Why it matters to it, I don't know. And then again, maybe it doesn't at all. You know, it's it's so weird because season three feels like a blur to me in a way because it was such a liminal time in everyone's lives. I had also just moved to the Oregon coast away from Seattle and was dealing with adjusting to small town life again. And I was about to be adjusting to <laughs> feeling like I'd never travel again, like so many of us. So I do remember for season three is I, I wanted to allow myself more space to explore the individual story. And so what that meant is that if I needed to split a few of these episodes into two, that I would give myself that opportunity. At this time, I was working with a, a really great editor named Jenny Asarno, and they came from the public media world. And so a lot of the things that I had learned in the first and second season, I began collaborating with her directly and getting some confirmation that the process that we were using for the show is, is much like what they do at This American Life or Stamp Judgment, except with about 98% less human beings working on it. <laughs> so I felt really good with what the small team at Euphemet was able to accomplish with almost no money at all. <laughs> I'm going to leave a nice sweet treat for all of the, like, animals and the nature spirits around here. Because I brought all this honey. This is probably the shittiest honey of all time or something, but at least the use will be good. I love honey. I use it so much in my magic. Mm, really? Yeah. As, like, a magical tool, it sweetens things, so it makes things nicer yeah. you know so yeah if I ever want to like do any magic for, like for my friends honey always yeah. I'm not a hexer I have put one person in a jar really? but they really really what do, you, what do you mean you put them in a jar yeah that's a hex that's a type of hex she was trying to hurt me and my daughter and she had been doing it for years. I mean, I let it go, and I let it go, and I let it go, and I let it go. And she just wouldn't fucking go away. So she got put in a jar, and I haven't heard from her since. Yeah, of course not. She's in a fucking jar in the ocean. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> going into season three, I could have never expected what was going to happen. That the world was going to completely shut down. And so I was essentially left with some tape and my last couple of trips that I took, which included a, a trip in frigid January to Skinwalker Ranch in, in Utah. That was the only time I could have done that. Because in a few months, there would be no travel at all. 
So, of course, I was there in January. Of course, I was there when it was five degrees out because it was my only opportunity to capture this before everything fucking shut down in the world. I decided to uh, treat myself to going to Los Angeles and talking to one of my favorite filmmakers. And that's where season three, like, sort of to really take this shape of being less concerned with the format that we had developed over two seasons and being more concerned with seeing how the creative bounds could be stretched. You know, at that time and all throughout this process, I watch and read a lot of Anthony Bourdain. It's been a wild ride, a lot of miles, a road sometimes smooth, sometimes hard and ugly. And I guess I could tell you that if you look hard enough, that just next door is just as interesting as the other side of the world. But that's not exactly true. If I do have any advice for anybody, any final thought, if I'm an advocate for anything, it's to move as far as you can, as much as you can, across the ocean or simply across the river. The extent to which you can walk in somebody else's shoes or at least eat their food, it's a plus for everybody. Open your mind, get up off the couch, move. And generally, I love his philosophy in terms of producing what their shows were. Parts Unknown, in particular, he had uh, an almost defiant uh, relationship with how he felt that the viewers should enjoy that program. And he would always say, if you liked the last episode, don't expect this next one to be anything like that. And there was a part of that that I felt, well, maybe I will experiment a little bit during season three. And the reason being is that I think that sometimes when we're challenged a little bit as an audience member, that can open up different doorways that don't exist yet within our spectrum of beliefs or biases or prejudices, even things that excite us and, 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 and that we enjoy. I think being challenged occasionally as an audience is a really great thing. I started to think about the films and the music that I love. I do enjoy like a great melody and I listen to all sorts of music, but I also listen to a lot of like sort of noise bands. I listen to hardcore bands. The, the films I watch are sometimes obscure and even shitty. Uh, <laughs> Because they can be, and they want to be. Artistically, that's what I was trying to capture. I was trying to tap into other creatives that could possibly give voice to these ideas in new ways. And simply by sharing that space with them, it would maybe open up something new in them. They would, they would potentially inspire works that they want to do. So when I sat down with a guy like Daniel Noah from SpectreVision, I was actually like a little nervous. So at this point in time, Daniel was one of the more high profile people that had ever been on, uh, featured on Euphemet. And that's essentially because I, I heard his story uh, told on Snap Judgment and uh, on their Spooked series. And I reached out just to tell him like, 
hey, that, you know, um, thanks for sharing your story. I think it was really good. But needless to say, you know, Daniel and I hit it off and, you know, he had more of his story to tell. So I'm on the roof of the cabin. So there's a raised attic and there's a window and there's a girl in the room with long black hair. And she seems very distressed and she can't find her dad. This is now I'm fully dreaming. And in my dream, I'm like, oh, I know where your dad is. You don't have to be scared. It's okay. It's okay. You should just come out, come out of the room. And she's too scared. And to try and comfort her, I put my hand on the glass. And then she puts her hand on the glass as though we're touching hands. And she then puts her face against the glass and smashes up her features and then starts to pass through the glass. And every part of her that is now on my side of the glass is a decaying corpse. And it's like that scene in The Ring, a little girl climbing out of the TV, only it's a window. I was in a state of indescribable terror and I needed, I knew I needed to get back down to Ariel as fast as possible. So I went running down the stairs and I turned around and I could see her like shrew-like, wrathfully screaming and chasing me. And then again, I, I woke up and it felt very much like more than a normal dream. So in the morning, we're having coffee and I say, how'd you sleep? And she's like, not so good. And I said, why? What's up? And she said, well, I think I was having hallucinations. And I said, oh, fuck, this place is haunted, right? And she was like, yes. Like she, we both had been having the same experience. She had also been thinking, well, oh, he would say something if he was away. He's clearly sound asleep. He's not hearing. She had heard the footsteps and she had heard the sound of someone running down the stairs right around the time that I had the dream of being chased down the stairs. So that was really interesting. And, uh, you know, later on in the season, um, I talked to, you know, Colin Frangicetto from Circa Survive. And uh, again, uh, someone deeply rooted within the entertainment industry. Um, his band uh, was one that I remember, you know, uh, watching from the side of the stage at Warp Tour and, uh, you know, participating wholeheartedly in, you know, sort of that genre of music for a long time. And to see how an individual like him has has evolved and uh, allowed sort of mysticism and wonder to guide not just their art, but them as people was really fascinating. And something that I think that a lot of people could probably learn. Sometimes it feels cumbersome. Sometimes it feels a lot. Sometimes it feels like you're getting pulled deeper into a sea by an octopus. You know, an octopus that potentially you had just not met yet, but you had been communicating with for a very, very long time. It's so weird. And then your whole, your whole uh, timeline starts to unravel and everything just seems more and more crazy and you're trying to figure out a way to text your friend about it and it's like i can't i like how am i going to fit this in a text you know there's just no way and that's like the really funny part about all of it is that it's taunting you it's saying i just added 15 more minutes onto your story 
that you, is already too long for you to explain to anybody. And so it just keeps getting more incredible. But the thing is, is that each story is like, it's just a piece of it. And it doesn't make sense without the rest of it. And that is what's so maddening about these types of things. When you're in a synchronistic vortex, every single one from the start of it, they're all so important to the sense of otherness that comes along with it. Because otherwise it is just a coincidence. It's just a thing that someone is like, oh, that's weird. It's like, no, you don't even know the fucking half of it. You know, it's way beyond weird. It's beautiful and it's horrifying. <laughs> Season three, entering into Night Drift was just a strange, strange thing and a time where I knew that it was important to try to figure out ways to continue communicating long form features on individuals experiencing this stuff that they can't explain. And it was about me trying to figure out the technology behind how to even do that. And season three is weird and I'll always look back on it probably fondly in a way because it was a time where so many of us had to find ulterior ways to get together and, and to communicate and, and to create art. And uh, it's a time where I made some great friends. It's definitely a time where I was forced to slow down. Uh, I could not run away from things while being on the road anymore. I could not use that as an excuse, either personally or financially or creatively. So to be forced to sit down and stay in one room and to look around, appreciate what I had, and to then develop just a ton of great new friendships over that time. You know, I met uh, I met my editor slash producer, John McEdward, during that time, who peeked behind the curtain is asking me these questions so that we can produce this in time. I, you know, met Daniel Noah during that time, who's been an incredible friend. Uh, and, I've, and I've met others. Uh, there was a lot of other projects that happened during that time. Strange Days with Andrew Jewell. I met Bex Atwood during that time, who has become such a big part of, of what I do for the show. Uh, Darcy Staniforth and I became thick as thieves with the introduction of the Patreon Hangouts and Night Drift. And there's, there's many, many others that, uh, if I'm not mentioning you in particular, that's okay because this is highly edited and curated and it's not my fault. It's John's fault that you're not mentioned right now. Yeah, season three can be summarized by experimentation and desperation. I think season four featuring almost exclusively stories from listeners really stemmed from the place and time we were at. And things like Night Drift and the ulterior ways that we needed to stay connected and, and touch base with each other. So what happened during that time is people had more space to consider things and maybe sort of 
step outside their own box of safety and put themselves on the line a little bit. And how that materialized was that I started to get just a ton of listener emails and messages. You know, my inbox has never been as full as it was during that time. But to be honest, it continues to be very full with listeners, not writers in the field, um, not practitioners of mystical arts, but most assuredly finding that they needed to really express this this unknown thing that happened in their life that really shaped them or this ability that they can't quite share often with people. And so what occurred during that time is that my experimentation of doing live radio again with Night Drift evolved into me finding the particular software that I required to take a stab at doing features again, but just doing them a little differently. No longer would I be able to go out into the field and produce these things, but I was pretty sure that we could get some great emotional, honest tape just online. I think what happened is that that season really changed the shape of the show because although I had fears sort of like deep in my heart that we wouldn't be able to connect as well as being in person and that the emotionality, the quality of these experiences weren't going to be able to be fully communicated. I was, I was really wrong about that. And in fact, for some people, it is the best way for them to communicate with their whole heart. So the hard part about telling you this wasn't that I, I, I mean, I wanted to tell you, but then there was this other part of the story I didn't want to tell you because, and I had not really told many people, you know, I probably wouldn't have told you except my son wanted me to tell you. So I, I thought, oh yeah, this is a, this is a good combination right now. And I didn't even tell my son right away because it, it felt like it, it changed the story, but I never, it's, it's definitely been part of the story the whole time. But I felt like if I said it, then it would nobody would believe it at all. And I think that's the reason I even questioned whether I saw it or not um, on that night because of the thing that happened before I saw it. It began a thing, and I'm sure everyone listening can relate. It wouldn't, we wouldn't even really ask about <laughs> COVID-related shit anymore to each other. We wanted to talk about anything but please let's talk about goblins. <laughs> please let's talk about old UFO books because we do not want to live right now where we are. So I came out of her house and um, I went down into the driveway, got into my car, backed out of her driveway just like I did every night that I took care of her cat. And um, I drove to the end of the street she lived on, which ended at a little stop sign. And then as you sat at the stop sign across that road, there was a short little cul-de-sac with a few other houses on it. So the headlights of my car were shining down into this cul-de-sac from the stop sign. What I saw at the end of the cul-de-sac where it rounded out was this, this large 
broad-shouldered humanoid figure crouched down and I just I just remember grabbing hold of my steering wheel and looking at this dog-headed thing that was crouching down against the ground and staring back at me and I remember saying out loud is that a werewolf I think that's a fucking werewolf and I think it allowed us to together uh, both listener stories and and for myself to appreciate what we had and appreciate what we could build eventually together. And season four changed the entire show. It the show has become, I think, uh, more focused and biting and brave than ever before. What was really incredibly interesting about the listener stories was that stories is key. <laughs> there was a lot to mine, and many of the people that we talked to in season four will be featured again because they have more. And there are also people that uh, are keeping in contact. And as things evolve, we continue talking about it. And so... However, the, the, the machinations of our social fabric being tore away during that time instead seemed to fracture into a million pieces, into a million piles of glass that together formed community in very energetic niche ways. And it just so happens our pile of glass is one of the most strange, surreal piles of glass in all of it. It's reflective of who we are and we can see right through to what our relationship to the unknown is and the possibilities that are in that which is together there's there's more together there's opportunity together there are not necessarily answers but there is pursuit like never before the the, the dot 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 at the end of these stories starting with season four these stories continue to evolve and it gives me so many different ideas and inspiration about how the show continues to evolve in that way as well. Because these are lives we're talking about, they're not just incidents. And that was a huge breakthrough for me. That these are lives, these are people, they're not just like a couple stories in the back of an article somewhere. You know, as we hit our four-year anniversary, of the documentary series of You've Met and our 50th episode upcoming. I feel like the fifth season is a culmination of everything that had come before and more. I feel that not only does it honor the work and the stories that have been told thus far, but it suggests what the future of the podcast can and will be. It, suggest what the future of maybe my life is and how the stories that are shared through this program continue and evolve and, and build out new things. You know, we're, we're seeing starting to happen through the podcast feed. And I think something that we'll continue to see happening is the evolution of storytelling in this space and a focus on documentary storytelling 
in new and exciting ways that maybe the space has not heard before, or at least in terms of this podcast has not heard before. I think that as long as it has the candid, uh, earnest, curious, open heart perspective, that this Youth Map project has a lot of potential to go in a lot of different interesting, strange places. And that says a lot considering where we've been so far. And then she stopped and then she said, listen, I'm going to tell you, I've been having these dreams about you. Her skin was like tree bark. It was dark and it was like tree bark. And you could tell it was rough like lizard. And her eyes were red. When all of a sudden she started speaking to me telepathically. And what she said was, where I come from, marriage is the most sacred part of our existence. And I am giving you the chance to experience this if you wish. So I think if I were to qualify any difference in perception or belief in the paranormal from when I started this project, I'd have to say that unequivocally, I feel like I know less than I did when I started. And that I have no idea, still, what I believe. Only that I know that that is not maybe quite true. That's the only thing I believe. And so with that sort of openness, it of course leaves me a little exposed to the transgressions of the whimsical esoteric. But perhaps it's also the clear lens I need to see through this, to try to find the humanity in each and every story and keep myself grounded in all of this with one foot in and one foot out and always continually looking up. And I think that is the most solid place to be, is uh, being okay with not knowing shit. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. This feature was edited and scored by John McEdward. And thank you to everyone who has contributed their story over the last four years. And a huge nod to everyone who has worked with the show. In random order, I'd like to thank Chelsea Weber-Smith, Kyle Gilmer, Andrew Jewell, Jenny Asarno, Ty Gowan, Carl Pfeiffer, Manzanita Carpenter, Haley Pearson, Bex Atwood, Daniel Noah, Tyler Carey, True Native Media, Ryan Sprague, Odie Ortiz, and Eric Crema, and everyone at KKNW, Carl at Joyful Noise Recordings, Michelle Freed, everyone at Megaphone and Anchor, Gina Turner, Tim Rothschild, Colin Frangicetto, John Tenney, Garrett Kelly, Hollow Earth Radio in Seattle, Bill Gilmer, Tim at Deep Talk Radio, Ryan Singer, Sapphire Sandalo, Guide to the Unknown, Bigfoot Collectors Club, Richard Serrett, Shannon Legros, Q Files, Greg Newkirk, and of course, Darcy Staniforth and John McEdward. Thank you to our longtime sponsor, AMC Network Shutter. They've been big believers in this program from day one and continue to support the show. For everything you've met, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. This has been Euphemet, and I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up. <laughs>